Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, we'll manage people the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is Wednesday, August 22nd, 2012. This is episode 965 of the Survival Podcast. Folks, that means we're only 35 days away from, or 35 episodes away from episode 1000. I really would like you to participate. Uh, there'll be a link in today's show notes as there has been a lot of episodes recently that says, be a part of episode 1000 and I'll leave you today with, uh, with that as my only request because most of you know what it's all about. If you don't, there's a whole post on it, including how you can be part of the Revolution 2.0 video as well. Uh, but I just want to keep reminding you of that because time to be part of that is winding down and running out. I'm ready to start putting things together very, very soon. Uh, next up today, I want to uh, tell you that if I sound a little different than usual, there's two reasons. One, after being in Vermont for five days, sleeping out in a tent and doing multiple presentations, uh, and specifically presentations to groups in open environments without audio, my voice is a little strained. Uh, good enough to do the show today, but that's why it's there. The second thing is, when I uh, when I came into the office today, I had taken my studio microphone up to Vermont to do the show I did for you guys yesterday with Ben. And uh, I left it at the house when I came in this morning. It's just one of those things you leave every day. You don't bring your microphone with you because it stays at the office. So I'm on a USB headset. So uh, a little bit of a throwback on audio quality, but it still should be pretty good. It'll probably have less uh, less audio variation with me moving away from the mic. But the studio mic will be back uh, tomorrow. Dorothy's bringing it into the office in just a little bit. Um, but now before we get into today's show, which is going to be a listener feedback show, I went away for a weekend, so we kind of missed a call-in show and a feedback show. So at least we're going to do a feedback show today. Um, I, before I do that, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today is Western Botanicals. You know, uh, we just spent a lot of time up in Vermont talking uh, in a permaculture course with a lot of, uh, especially sideline conversations about herbs. And herbs are amazing, wonderful things. But there's a lot of herbs that really are very powerful and can be very good for us in a variety of ways that are difficult to find or grow in our area. Or maybe we can grow them like crazy in, in summer, but not so much in winter, and maybe we don't have to put any put away. And then there's times we just don't know what we need. In those times, we need a great source, and we need a great source of information. Western Botanicals is my go-to source for all things herbal, especially when I'm not sure what I need. When I'm like, I'm dealing with an issue... What could I try? Pick up the phone, call Dr. Kyle Christensen or a member of his staff, and they'll help you out. And if it's something that, like, I don't even need to order from them. So they're like, well, you know, have you tried this? And I'm, I might just try it with the stuff that I have at home. But when I need it, whatever it is, they've got it as well. Real people that really care and a great discount for MSB members as well. Make sure you check that out in your benefits section before ordering from them. Next up today, KnifeKits.com. Now, what I love about Knife Kits is they'll let anybody become a knife maker. They really will. They empower you. I said let is probably the wrong word. Empower you. Because if you really already know what you're doing and you're a master craftsman and you just need exotic and really cool materials or the best quality materials you can get, they have that. If you've never built a knife before and you want to go step-by-step step through the process of building a kit knife, you can get a knife kit. You can get a DVD. You can get a book. You can get all the information you need to be, either begin as a complete and, and brand-new person or a novice or an expert 
all three levels will enjoy uh, using KnifeKits.com. And again, they also support the MSP. So if you're an MSP member and you're going to order from Knife Kits, make sure you check that out as well. By the way, I got an email from a listener recently that said, hey, do you know they do Kydex kits for like your pistols and things like that as well? Uh, and he built his own uh, holster for one of his handguns. So uh, they are a little bit more than just knives. So check them out for that as well. Next, I want to remind you guys I will be in Hickory, North Carolina, September 14th and 15th, doing two presentations, one on putting a bug-out bag together. It's a great slide deck that I put together with a lot of the things that we actually use in the Spirico household, and I'll also be presenting the 12 Planks of Modern Survivalism. There will be an early meet-and-greet for TSP members. We'll try to put something together. I'm thinking maybe Friday night would be better than Saturday. I'm not sure yet. Maybe we'll do something both nights, but the expo runs to like 8 o'clock, and that's really late. Now, the good news is I don't have to stay till late. I can bug out about 6. Uh, but some of the people that might want to come might be people that are exhibiting. It might be held up till 8, almost 9 o'clock by the time they put everything away. So uh, I'm not sure about that yet. But if you would like to help coordinate some kind of a meet-up, after-hours meet-up, uh, get in touch with me by email. And I, I could really use some help and logistics on that, especially somebody from the area that might know a good bar or pub or something like that we can hang out uh, after hours at. All the details about the early meet and greet and my presentation will be released later this week. Uh, last but not least, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. If you do that, you get exclusive content available only to members. You support the show at about 20 cents an episode. Those of you that are military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty, and prior service, uh, please send me an email before you join, jack at the survivalpodcast.com. And uh, put service discount in the subject line. Tell me who you are and what you're doing or who you are and what you did. And I will get back to you just as soon as I possibly can with a discount code before you join that will thank you for your service. Okay, so the first story that I want to start out today uh, kind of stems from listener feedback that wasn't initially designed, I don't think, to be real listener feedback for the show. So I got an email from somebody a couple days ago. And it was just one of these joke emails. And it was a picture of a $10 bill. And it says, some of you might have seen this on the Facebook uh, page, how Bernanke pays at restaurants. And all the 10s are crossed out with an X, and they're replaced with a 20. And the, the word 10 for $10 is crossed out and replaced with the word 20 written in with like a black ink pen. And um, I, I didn't really post it as any kind of a big political statement or with any agenda. I simply posted it because, well, I thought it made a, a valid point about the devaluation of our money. Now, here's the interesting thing that occurred uh, after that. We got a lot of comments, and a few of them revolved around the gold standard and audit the Fed. And, and this really wasn't auditing the Fed, uh, though I can see how that gets lumped into this. But, you know, like here's uh, Diana says, I'm so sick of seeing this meme. Whoever made it only heard only heard of monetary inflation but doesn't really understand it. This would be a much better example of monetary deflation uh, where the script gains value. I, I actually, no. No. No, it's not. Uh, so that's a complete misunderstanding of how inflation versus deflation works. Uh, changing the number on, on a $10 bill shows exactly what's going on. It simply means that you're able to just inflate the value of the money. Uh, even though the $10 bill, in, in essence, would buy less, uh, the, the the point being made is value. But I can understand what she's saying. But there was other people uh, on here, and there's so many comments, it's hard to find them. But 
Uh, here's one from Eric. Eric says, you all seem to be on the same page. Can one of you explain to me why the gold standard would be better? And uh, this sentiment I see a lot. I understand the argument in favor of fiat in favor of fiat currency, but no one has made a case for gold yet. It's just asserted all the time if it's uh, as if it's self-evidently better. Um, see, and this is where what I kind of want to start out with you guys on today is again. I, I want you as as we're going to go forward through a lot of shit in the, in the coming years. We really are. This nation is going to be uh, put through some real trials. And during that period of time, one of the big things that's going to come up is the blame game, and I'm going to get into how that's going to factor into this one, and, and might even uh, factor into the next election and the uh, if we have a new president uh, after the next election versus reinstating an old one, how it might really get trumped up and used. But the first thing I want to start out with is the dichotomy here. Now, no one said a word about gold including all the other commenters. I went through all the other comments last night. I sat after I got home and started to look at you know, what went on Facebook after I posted this and what did people have to say. And no one brought up gold. But yet several people said, well, how would gold be better? And some people would say, this is deflation. And argue about shit. And they don't understand a single damn thing about what's going on here or what the point was. And, and, and I think this kind of creeps in with audit the Fed. So audit the Fed has absolutely nothing to do with reinstating a gold standard in and of itself. Audit the Fed simply has to do with, let's figure out what the hell they've done, where the hell they're at, how we got there, and how bad the problem is. So even if you were a diehard, in-the-wool believer of the current fiat debt money system, and that's another thing, I don't want to go too deep in today because it will become the whole show, but we do not have a pure fiat currency in this country. We don't. If we did, the government would simply issue the money. That would be it. That would be the end of the story. We have a currency that's given value through fiat, basically by the government saying it is money. It's legal tender. You can use it. But it's not pure fiat. Pure fiat would be backed by nothing but the government. The money's not backed by the government. It's backed by private debt. Or it's actually public debt held by a variety of private and public sources, uh, which is then leveraged against other debt. So it's not purely fiat. But if you believed in that system, that has absolutely nothing to do with whether or not we should audit the Fed. Auditing the Fed would be, so are you doing it the way that you say you're doing it? Is the debt really what you say it is? Who's holding the debt? How much debt is there really? How much interest is there really? Uh, how much of the money that you're making as a profit is truly being returned to the Treasury? What decisions were made in the past year, two years, three years, four years, five years, uh, that weren't disclosed to the American people? How can you sit in front of a congressman or a senator and be asked where you put $2 trillion worth of American people's money and tell him, no, you're not going to tell him? Maybe we want to know where the money went. How can you uh, tell us it was $2 trillion and then we dig deeper and we found out later, thanks to the work by Senator Sanders, that it was $16 trillion of, of, of money that was lent out globally? Where is that money now? When will that money be back? See, even if you... Even if you're completely okay with the system as you're told it is, auditing is saying, well, is it the way we've been told? And and the important thing here is, why do people feel a need when a problem is pointed out to immediately polarize into an A-B paradigm? So it doesn't require that you say, we should just go to a gold standard, because many of you know I don't think that's necessarily the answer. But yet you still respond with it because you're used to this adversarial relationship. 
And let me tell you why this is important, specifically on this issue. From scuttlebutt on the street right now, it looks like we may just come out of the Republican National Convention with the GOP adding onto its platform of things that its agenda for the next four years will be, one of them being audit the Fed. Now, strategically, this is a brilliant maneuver because there are a lot of kind of lackluster supporters for the GOP right now that wanted a Ron Paul. They wanted a stronger, more conservative ticket. They believed that if they had gotten, I don't know, one of the other clowns that wasn't Ron Paul, it would have been better, Bachman or something like that. And and, and they, they want kind of reform. And this would be a very strong statement by the GOP that, yeah, we're, we're pushing for reform. Now, what do I really think? Yeah, it's just marketing. Okay, but if they say they want to do it, and you give them a chance, at least you can hold their feet to the fire and say do it. But there could be a much more sinister reality to this, uh, a much bigger thing to look at long term. So Mitt Romney is not stupid. Um, I'm not a supporter of him or Barack Obama, but I will acknowledge that Romney's an intelligent businessman, and he understands um, everything that I explain to you about the economy and debt uh, at a higher level than I do. He's more intelligent economically than I am. He's just either bought into the system or figures it's the system we have, so why don't I use it, manipulate it, and that's how I believe he would govern. But he's not stupid, and he knows the economy's in deep shit. And he knows if he wins this race that he's going to face many of the things that Barack Obama faced, which is you said you were going to fix it, and now it's worse than before. Yeah, the stock market's higher, but uh, nobody has a job still. Right? Where's all this prosperity we were promised? And for, for Romney, it might very well be worse because he might take over, rate as all of these confluences come together. And as many of you know, I've now said, and I'll talk about at the end of today's show why I feel that the you know double dip of the recession is now I've moved it up from, like I was guessing, around 2014 to either late 2012, immediately after the election, or mid-2013. I, I can almost guarantee it right now. That's based on a feeling. Again, I'll get more into that. But let's say that that's the case. Let's say 2014 is the number. Let's say that my original timeline is better uh, and more accurate. Well, when it happens, when it happens, if Romney's president, wouldn't it be a good idea for him to have someone to blame? Think about that. Wouldn't it be a really good idea... If you were about to take over a company or a nation or a state and you knew there was a looming fiscal crisis and one that you weren't going to get an opportunity to correct, and even if you wouldn't correct it anyway, even if you think that the system is fine, it just needs time for the deleveraging to cycle out, but you know you're going to get the blame for it, wouldn't it be smart in advance to line up someone to put the blame on? So wouldn't it be smart... If, if Romney's sitting here looking at the sentiment of the country right now and going, okay, boys, if we win, we have to start playing chess, not just checkers. We've got a long road to hold to the election, but let's say I win. And let's say that they manage to duct tape this thing together until I take the oath of office, and this whole thing starts unwinding immediately after I become president. Um, how difficult will, will it be for me to further my agenda, stay in office for more than one term, get anything done, and, and frankly not have the capital turn into a complete mess as people riot and start, you know, burning shit down in the streets? Who do we, who do we deflect this anger and outrage at? 
And if you're an advisor for, for Romney on the financial sector, then you might say, well, the prevailing feeling of the country right now, especially many of the people that will put you in office, is that the Federal Reserve is the real cause of all this. And there's this audit the Fed movement being, you know, championed by one of their their great leaders in, in Ron Paul. And even though he's retiring, he got this through the House. And his son Rand is now championing this in the Senate. And, and a lot of people on, on both sides of the aisle uh, that have looked at this are actually for it. They're like, you know, I'm not necessarily for repealing the Federal Reserve Act. Some are, some aren't. But most Americans, when they're explained to that it's just an examination of Federal Reserve practices and and, and, and congressional oversight into the decision making, uh, they 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 are like, yeah, like there's no reason we shouldn't be able to look at that and get an answer. So if the answers that come put Bernanke and the Fed in a poor light, there could be your boogeyman to blame. I think it's completely plausible. I think if I were Romney, it's what I would do. I might have different motivation, but as a politician, your motivations change. And I think that that is a real thing we're looking at here. And it it doesn't make me feel good about the future. It shouldn't make you feel good about the future either. And the bigger lesson, in addition to the dichotomy, stop freaking doing it, people. Stop immediately as soon as somebody points out a problem with a system going, oh, they're against that system. Maybe they are, maybe they aren't. I don't have to be against the system to point out a problem with it. If um, you bring me your car and I tell you the problem is that your spark plugs are shit and they're burned out, that doesn't mean I'm against the internal combustion engine. That means we need to change the plugs. Or if I tell you the gap in the spark plug is too wide or too narrow and it's causing issues with ignition, that doesn't mean I'm against spark plugs. It just means that we need to regap the plug, right? And, and the and the bigger lesson here is this dichotomy is exactly what they're going to use. And every single major crisis we're going to go through, the goal of those in power or those seeking power who are currently out of power will be to polarize the nation into an A and B dichotomy, so that they can say the other side did it and say it's either A or B, right? Pepsi or Coke, gold or fiat, and you keep. Buying into their freaking bullshit. For the love of God, will the American people please do this? Pop! That would be the sound of your heads coming out of your collective asses and stop buying into the bullshit of the dichotomy. Even if you're for a fiat money system, it's still run with rules and it should be run according to those rules and having somebody look at it and say, are you doing what the F you say you're doing and if not, why? And if you did it wrong, where the hell did it go is not wrong. But the people in power don't give a shit about that. They give a shit about being able to say, look, it's his fault, not mine. Obama's mantra, Bush did it. Romney's mantra will be, Ben Bernanke did it, should he win. And don't be so surprised, don't be so surprised if Obama wins re-election that he doesn't change his stance, garner just a little bit of Democratic support for this in the Senate, push it through, not for reforms, but so that he can also blame the Fed. Because blaming Bush in the next four years ain't going to work. And they all want to blame somebody. And I really wish the American people would wake up to that. So that's our first one for the day. So the next one, we're going to stick with finance here for a little bit, and then we'll segue elsewhere. But this is very, very important, and this is something that's not going to get anywhere the exposure uh, that it should, and you're going to get told lies about what it really means. They'll mitigate it by saying it was 
it was just something they've been trying to do for a couple of years anyway that anybody would want to do because of how it's tied in to Lehman Brothers and things like that. But it's a bigger deal than this. And uh, I, I think you'll see that this is a first step by Warren Buffett. And going forward, you'll see more and more of this. So here's the headline. Buffett cuts $16 billion municipal credit bet in half. Um that's a lot of money. So that's $8.25 billion that Berkshire Hathaway just divested themselves of. Let me read you this article. It's on Reuters. So, I mean, this is a legitimate news source. This isn't some, uh, you know, some ad hoc blogger that, that says, I, somebody told me. No, this is public filings because Berkshire is a public company. It has to file things like this uh, in their reporting. Berkshire Hathaway, Inc. will terminate $8.25 billion in credit default swap protection as sold on municipal debt. More than half of the total $16 billion in protection has sold on bonds of states, cities, and towns. The company said in a regulatory filing this month. The move comes as many investors, including Berkshire chairman, billionaire investor Warren Buffett, foresee an uptick in U.S. municipal bankruptcies. Buffett said last month that the bankruptcies of three California cities in as many weeks was making traditionally objectionable Chapter 9 municipal bankruptcy filings more palatable to local governments in financial crisis. Let me tell you what that means in Jack language instead of Buffett language. More palatable to local governments in financial crisis. No, what it means is very simple. When one person goes first, it's easier for the second person to go. And when it's the second person, the first person went, it gets really easy for the third and when the you know then the fourth and then all of a sudden it's a crowd and everybody does it at the same time. Uh, making this simple, when I was a kid, uh, trout there was a trout season in Pennsylvania because they would stock the trout up till the season and there was this time you weren't supposed to fish in any trout stream or body of water that was stocked by the state because basically then one person could just go in there and clean out all these stocked fish. They didn't have time to adapt and move around and what have you. So there was a day that you could start fishing. And many other states do this as well, I'm sure. And on that day, so it wasn't like, you know, 12.01 in the dark, you're out there, you know, fishing. It was 8 a.m. And at 8 a.m., you could throw in. And if you threw in at like 7.59, and there was a fish warden in plain clothes standing next to you, you would get a ticket, lose your, you, you know, lose maybe lose your fishing rod to, uh, uh, what do you call it, confiscation and things like that. So, and it was common that fish wardens would just go out and just stand in plain clothes like they were fishing themselves and wait to see, and you know, these, some of these streams would be lined up with 20 or 30 people fishing. So one of the things that we snapped to was throwing in early would be cool, especially when you're cold and you want to get fishing. So if it's like 10 minutes till, you hold your rod up and you throw the rod like you're casting and you, draw, you let a rock go and it looks like you threw in. And then you'd see like one person up the stream throw in a little bit early and then like yank a fish out right away. And then another person, and all the lines would go in. And once all the lines went in, you kind of looked around like, okay, there's no, 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 uh, no evil fish warden here. And then everybody would throw in. Right, and this isn't like poaching or anything. This is like you know five minutes early on the time or something, which technically is a violation, but it happened all the time, all the time. That's why wardens went out and did it, you know, because they could, you know, write up a few citations early in the day and be done uh, with their quotas, so to speak. So that's what the, what Buffett's actually saying is once a few throw in, it's easier for everybody else to throw in. They have an example. Um, and you can read the rest of this article if you want to. It's it's not that long. But let me explain to you what's really going on with uh, ensuring a credit default swap. So what happens is uh, these municipalities are buying or selling the bonds. And then people buy the bonds. And then people that buy the bonds say, I don't want to really want to hold the bond any further. So they 
they take their bond holdings and they roll them up into a vehicle, a package of multiple bonds, like a like a, a bond mutual fund, and then they sell it off to another investor. And they're 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 deferring their risk by by selling it off or selling pieces of it off. And this happens over and over and over again. And then what happens is somebody says, "Oh shit, we're holding an awful lot of debt here. What if it doesn't get repaid? Maybe we should get some insurance against it." So they look for insurance, and along comes somebody like uh, Berkshire Hathaway, and they say, "We'll insure your debt." And they'll and and basically they say, "Just just pay us X dollars, and if you have a default, we'll cover it. It's it's insurance." Right, so it's writing an insurance policy in, in essence, and that way Berkshire Hathaway makes a hundred percent profit because when they do that, they don't tender anything. The only way they're out any money is if the 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 bond fails. So only if the person holding the bond uh, in, in the end of the chain ends up having it fail and not getting the bond paid, then they have to cover the bond. So when you're insuring something like government debt. It's been kind of an insider's way to make lots of money with low risk for a long time. Now, a lot of this debt that they just unasked the insurance over was tied to the Lehman debacle. But so people just say, well, that's that's what he was just, you know, it's Lehman Brothers. They're they're defunct. They wanted to get rid of it. But from Berkshire's position, there was no reason the underlying holders of, of the default swaps couldn't change, and they couldn't remain in their position uh, and continue to collect premiums on the debt. Uh, if they were comfortable with the underlying debt. They're just the insurance company in this arrangement. So it was a convenient way to deleverage, you know, eight of $16 billion worth of holdings in this market without creating a complete and total panic. So now they've reduced their, their exposure by half. So now they can take that $8 billion and they can use it to cover their existing exposure and keep themselves safe while still saying, look, we're holding it. So what they'll do is they'll take this $8 billion likely, and you'll probably see a filing come down the road with new positioning, and they'll take the positioning and they'll bet the other side and collar. So we call that a collar in investing. So we're, we're, we're positioned where if it stays put, we basically stay at par. If it goes up, the the the, the cover on the, on the upside covers the loss on the downside and vice versa. And they'll probably slowly deleverage themselves out of the remaining $8 billion, but they know if they do that, that they can trigger a panic that they're not ready for yet. But what does it mean overall? That they know what Uncle Jack's been telling you for two years, that the municipal market, the municipal bonds, the state, county, city, local bond market is in deep shit for $2 trillion that it can't pay back. And that it has as much potential, if not more, to bring the country into recession 2.0 or the second Great Depression is what I'm going to call it, um, than even the federal debt. Because the states can't print money the way the Fed can. The, the Fed can kick the football, kick the can down the road for a long time. They can play a lot of games. The states can only get away with so much of that. And we're also learning more and more now is we're seeing these state bankruptcies that not all, or these city bankruptcies, no states so far anyway, that it's not just that it was as bad as they were telling us, but they were cooking the books and hiding things. And you have to ask yourself, when there's you know hundreds and hundreds of cities, hundreds and hundreds of counties, and 50 states that are all in the same position, have they all been lying to? Have they all been cooking the books? Have they been keeping, keeping some of the debt off of the record, out of the journals, a second set of books? And is it more than $2 trillion? Is it three? Is it four? 
I don't know, but Buffett's telling us to get the hell out. This is another reason that I am concerned about the period of time immediately after the election and going into 2013. That we're going to see more and more cascading effect. More and more, well, the guy down the stream threw in, even though it's 10 minutes early, maybe we need to, you know, come out and admit that we're bankrupt too. Especially once the election's wrapped up. Either they've done their job and kept their guy in, or they've done their job and got their guy in, or they lost the fight, but it's four years away. So now's the time to come clean, because you have four years of ramp up until the next major battle for power. Uh, so keep your powder dry, guys, and this is what it means, and this is what the mainstream won't tell you about it. So with all this mess coming our way, a more positive thing than just to keep beating the dead horse that, you know, the economy's dying might be to look at, well, what happens when an economy dies? How how are some people successfully coping with a dying economy? And we can look at Greece right now. And um, I don't want to pay too rosy of a picture because the Greeks have a much stronger sense of uh, local community, I think, than a lot of America does. And I think there's pockets of this in America, and there's probably pockets in Greece where they don't have this. And that's why you're going to hear a story about how one group is handling the crisis, and then you'll see on TV tomorrow probably somebody burning something down in the street. So you would probably see that here, but will it, you know, will there be as much positive here? And I, I don't know, but it's up to us to build it. So uh, this is on BBC News, and the headline is Greeks Go Back to Basics as Recession Bites. As Greece sinks even deeper into the most severe economic depression in living memory, some young people are taking drastic action to change their lives. You know, they're using the word depression over there, not recession. That's, that's a key indicator as well of things. In the spring of 2010, just as the Greek government was embarking on some of its harshest austerity members, 29-year-old Apollostolosiana, I don't know, A, packed it in his well-paid job as a website designer, gave up his Athens apartment and walked away from modern civilization. In the foothills of Mount Telethrion, in the Greek island of Evia, Mr. Sianos and three other like-minded Athenians set up an eco-friendly community. The idea was to live entirely in a sustainable way, free from the ties of money, and cut off from the national electricity grid. Crisis of Civilization The group sleeps communally in yurts they have built themselves. They grow their own food and exchange the surplus in the nearest village for any necessities they can't produce. Quote, what others saw as a global economic crisis, we saw as a crisis of civilization, Mr. Sianos explains. Quote, everything seemed to be in crisis, health care, the environment, education, so we made the decision to try something different. Mr. Sianos and his eco-activist companions first met in an online forum in 2008 after two years of exploring ideas decided to pull, put their principles into practice. Quote, when I first made the decision to give up the city and move to this patch of land, I was a little nervous, end quote, he admits. But now I can't imagine even being attracted by that kind of lifestyle ever again. The community calls itself Free and Real, and an acronym for Freedom of Resources for Everyone, Respect, Equality, Awareness, and Learning. I want to stop there for a second, because it sounds a lot like socialism, doesn't it? And in some ways it is. And I, the problem I usually have with people like this is that they generally want that at somebody else's expense. This group doesn't seem to do that. They have their own piece of property that they're managing. But I wonder how they would feel if I walked into their property and said, you know, we need freedom of resources for everybody, so give us some of what you have. And it's something that has to be balanced with this attitude. An understanding of the right to private property is essential for systems like this to be able to function. 
So I just want to, you know, kind of put that out there. Back to the article. Now in its second year, it has 10 permanent members and more than 100 part-time residents who spend some of their year there. But the last few months have seen an explosion of interest in the community from Greeks who feel let down by the system and find life in a financially crippled city stifling. Oh, the problem I see, and I'm off the article again, is what about what's the carrying capacity? How many people can really be supported by this community? And how do they expand their borders so they have more resources to share within their community without stealing from somebody else? Right? These are crises, solutions and crises in the making we need to examine as we think about how we might deal with this in a similar manner in the future. Maybe not the exact same way, but with similar tactics and components. Back to the uh, article. Uh, a recent survey by Tholonsky University suggested 76% of Greeks would like to immigrate. But for those who cannot afford to start a new life abroad, going back to farming the land is an increasingly attractive alternative. So three-quarters of the country wants to leave the country now. And I, those of you that, that are you know, devout in your socialism and say, look at Europe. Uh, so Greek, uh, Greece and Italy were two of the happiest places in the world to be. They were touted as an explanation of how socialism works so perfectly uh, just a few years ago. And now three-quarters of the country wants to get the hell out of there. They want to go somewhere else. I, you got to think about that. But for those who don't afford, okay, back up. Mr. Sanyo says this year has seen an enormous movement of people from big cities to the countryside, with many contacting his community to ask for advice on sustainable living and organic farming. The Greek financial crisis is not all negative, he says. It's proving to be a huge opportunity for people that see the system that they live in is not working, so they can begin looking for alternatives. And I think that's good, and I think that it's another possible future. You know, we just had uh, Glenn Tate on with his article about a partial collapse. This is kind of an example of that. There's still a city. There's still a functioning economy in the city, though it's really, really, really messed up. Uh, but when we when we look at what they're doing here, you have, like, parallel societies operating, and it's something we should be prepared to possibly deal with or be part of. Now, there's some important things to look at here. Like, one of the things is the fact that this community is not 100% self-sufficient. Far from it. What they're doing is creating surpluses of the things that they can produce well and using those surpluses to exchange in a barter arrangement with other communities, other cities, other towns to obtain that which they cannot produce. Which actually means that if more sustainable communities like this are created, the sustainability of each community is increased every time a new community comes online. And that's a huge thing as well. And what that means is that there's room for many communities like this where people can pool resources, uh, come together under common ideology. And that ideology can be drastically different between one community and the other, even though many of the mechanics uh, and the components of how that system will be run. In other words, it's like eco-federalism. Ooh, did Jack just create a new word? Eco-federalism? Uh, maybe. So I mean, some of you might be like, you know, kind of recoiling at that world because you think of federalism as like, you know, a federalist concept being that the, the central core should be strong. But it, it, what I'm talking about is more maybe eco-federal republic where these groups and organizations could have their own covenants for trading with each other, working with each other, supporting each other, even if they have drastic differences so that they would operate the way the states uh, in this country are supposed to operate. In other words, uh, the, Florida is supposed to compete with Georgia for ideas and economy. 
and they'll attract the best and the brightest uh, people to Florida if they do, uh, do a better job than Georgia does. And that these communities could have the same type of dynamic with even greater freedom than they would ever have uh, in a federal republic. And you could have a group of libertarians that don't hate the planet, for God's sakes. I had a big struggle conveying that to some of the folks at the PDC I was just at. That just because I don't believe uh, in environmental crisis from the same angle you, you believe it in. I'm not all obsessed with carbon. doesn't mean I don't believe in environmental crisis. And don't doesn't mean I don't want sustainability. It doesn't mean I won't make sem- many of the same choices that you will. But there's other choices that I'll want to make differently. And I, my view of freedom and liberty is going to be different than yours. So I think these communities, like these communities in Greece, have a real opportunity to be created here in America. And some of them might be completely off-grid. And then some of them might say, hell, we're going to use the grid, but we're going to use it smarter. Some of them might say, we're just going to use the grid, period. But we're going to have redundancies in place to compensate for grid failures that we anticipate will come. And we're going to slowly wane ourselves away from the grid in every way that makes sense. I think there's tremendous opportunity there, and it's 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 a good idea to start looking at things that way. You know, it's just with uh, Ben Falk up at his PDC, and the way he explains, like, I've got an excavator, and I'm burning diesel fuel, and and, and you know, you you want a low carbon footprint, but you know, and this is his words, not mine, right? But I can either put all these swales and terraces and ponds in now, and and, and build a system using this energy that will last a thousand years. Or my grandchildren can finish the work that I can do in a few years. And which one makes more sense for the environment? Which one makes more sense for longevity? And the way I put it is, um, I'm not a huge believer in like conventional peak oil theory. I'm a believer in oil costs going up astronomically in the future as the easy reserves are further and further depleted, that raising the cost of energy everywhere, uh, that I believe in. But I also think that there will come a time when too much of the oil or, or, or most of the oil that's accessible is gone. And that's probably a lot further off uh, than, than most people in the eco-movement want to believe. But I still think that future generations are going to look back and go, well, they burned all that stuff. And those future generations are your children, your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren, maybe your great-great-grandchildren. I don't know how far in the future, but my belief is when they look back, they're going to be more pissed off on what we did with it than the fact that we burnt it. Because we could have burnt it to do a lot more. These kind of, they're calling this one an eco-village, but I would prefer the, the term resilient community. People coming together under a common ideology. Some doing it very, very much in a communal standpoint the way this group seems to be done equal resources for all but I think a better model uh, and, and again it could compete side by side and see which one works better right a better model would be something where each individual in the community had a piece that was their own and then a community piece that was commonly managed and, and that seems like a much better way to do things so you know this is just like when they put a housing development in and everybody has their yard but there's a community swimming pool and everybody puts a little bit in to make sure that the pool stays clean and safe and that the grass around it is cut. Well, instead of putting in something that's wasteful like a giant swimming pool that uses lots of chlorine and bathes your children in a toxic chemical uh, and, and, and spending lots of money on grass and lawnmowers to keep a green belt around it, what if that community was surrounding basically something that could function as a school and a community farm? And all of the surplus that it was would, would produce would be returned to to the community members is a share. So if you know you were on a place where everybody had an acre, well, an acre would represent a share, and that can be returned back. And that's the way that I'm thinking in the future. Can I build a community like that? 
And I think that that model works. And I think that people end up needing a lot less land if they have a community around them to have as their own piece. So instead of having to have a thousand acres with a thousand people living in tents on it, you know, you could have 50 or 100 acres with, you know, 40 to 80 people and then, you know, 10 to 20 acres set aside as a way to further the, the agenda of the community, but with each person owning their own place. If they wanted to leave, they could leave and sell it and take something of what they've put in back. That's, that's how, you know, a federal republic works and that's, you know, like the federal republican eco, ecoism, uh, or something like that, uh, I think would be a really great model going forward. And I would wonder, because I believe in free market competition, I believe in the marketplace of both ideas and actions. So let's float an idea and see what comes behind it. But let's also take action and demonstrate it and build up momentum based on results that all of these communities, while drastically different in internal ideology, would arrive at many of the same places, and that would give people more choices in the way that they want to live. So that's kind of how I see this playing out long term on an optimistic side. The, the question is, can we do it? And can we do it in enough numbers for it to matter? It's nice that they put this story out there, but let's not lose sight of the fact that there's 10 people that live there. And maybe coming through on a part-time basis, there's 100. There's more to that article, though. There's also a, a second half. It's almost like it reads like a second article about the part-time employed, people that work seasonally and how this is affecting them. So you might want to read the rest of that article. There will be a link in today's show notes about it. Let's move into a few that are more Q&A type things. And, and, guys, I want more like this. I get a lot of stuff from you guys on big picture items and news stories and stuff. I'd like some more questions. And some of you guys send me questions that's like 40 questions in one email. It's not going to happen. I'm not even going to pull one out. When you send me questions, be cut and dry like this guy. Send me a question. Uh, if it's like question with two parts, that's fine. If it's a question with four parts, it's, it's too complicated uh, for a show like this. It'll take the whole show. All right, so... This is from Dallas, and Dallas in Arizona says, I agree with you on the point that everyone needs to have some cash at home in case we're unable to access money at the banks. I've heard a one-month supply of money is ideal, but does that figure include things such as your mortgage payments and any other large monthly expenses? I ask because it feels a little risky to have several thousand dollars in cash at home. If there was an event that prohibited people from accessing money for a period of time, I imagine the majority of mortgages and car loans would not be paid until the issues were resolved. I'd love to hear your opinion on this. Well, I can tell you what, if I'm in a situation where the money is seized up in the financial system and I can't get to the money that's in my bank account, even if I had cash to make a mortgage payment with, they're not getting it. They're not getting it because they're not getting it from anybody. And it's going to be up to them to unlock the money before they get any money. Uh, in that situation, you have two things that can happen. One, the cash is going to be unlocked, and then you can you can, you know, pay those bills, and if it's at a national or even a state level, there's going to be accommodation for that because they can't afford to repossess everybody's house. Who would they sell it to? Okay, so, so that's one side of it. The other side of it is that you've gone into that crisis and it's never coming back. Well, at that point, whatever cash you have should be used quickly to acquire resources anyway. That's a doomsday economic scenario. So when I look at holding cash, I don't look at covering my mortgage payment. I don't look at hold, covering my electric bill. I don't look at any of that stuff other than it is money, and I could use it for that if, let's say, it's an individual failure. If I have had 
individual financial failure, that is one of my assets that could be relied upon. Um, I do think it makes sense to hold quite a bit of cash. Uh, it doesn't necessarily all have to be uh, in an envelope under your bed. It does make sense to broke it, break it into multiple uh, places. Uh, for instance, if you have fireboxes, I recommend that you have more than one. You'll be amazed once you have limited space and you think, if there's a fire, what do I not want to lose? How many things you'll want to put in one box? If you have multiple boxes, if you had $2,000 and you had four boxes, and that was where you wanted all your money in boxes like that, put 500 in each box. I think that would make a lot of sense. I also think that we can hold cash in other ways. Uh, in many instances, even if there was kind of a problem with the banks as far as liquidity of deposits, it would be very probable that you would still be able to access things at least short term like safe deposit boxes. So that would be another place that you could store some of your money. And there are private storage secure facilities where you can store things as well. So those are some things to think about with that. I want to kind of go quick with it, but I just want to make sure that you understand when I say have cash on hand, if I say a month or two worth of expenses, no, I'm not including the things uh, that you would do uh, from a standpoint of uh, that, that would almost always are being paid electronically on a monthly bill situation. Uh, in that situation, if it's that bad and you put cash into a, an envelope and send it to the other side, it probably wouldn't get there anyway. All right, so that's what I'm talking about when I say a month or two of expenses. I'm talking about feeding yourself uh, and all the things that you would have to buy uh, on the economy locally. I think it makes sense to get smaller bills. I've talked to people, yeah, I've got a, you know, a couple rolls of hundreds. Who's going to be making change if cash is in sort of supply? Don't be surprised if somebody says, well, I, I can only make half of the change out of that. Do you really want this or not? Uh, and uses it as an opportunity to kind of skin that cat in the reverse direction uh, and take advantage of you. So make sure there's some small bills, fives, tens, twenties, even some ones. I would say if you had $2,000, uh, you should have at least 30 to 40 maybe $50 in ones. I know that seems extreme, but you know uh, that causes that allows a lot of rationalization. Quite a bit in fives, quite a bit in tens, quite a bit in twenties. Uh, and I would actually try to stay away from bills much larger than twenty. Uh, maybe a, a little bit of it can be held in hundreds, so maybe you can split it in half. Uh, but it's you know, have you ever had a hundred dollar bill and you need five bucks? And you know, do you get any resistance even in best of times? When you, you need it, so you run into a, a convenience store and buy a Snickers bar with a $100 bill. Have you ever tried it and been told, no, we, we don't accept hundreds on transactions that small? So that's something to be thinking about as well. The other thing is, if your normal cost of groceries for a month was, let's say, $300, then you can bet that in that crisis situation, you're probably going to need at least 400 to $600 to cover the same expense. So that starts to push the number up. You ask why? Because in that situation, you're going to see things like price gouging and price abuses. Even if the government says they're not going to let it happen, uh, the market will find a way to make it happen. So let's take another one. So I thought I'd give you a little entertainment and humor. Uh, I got an email from a guy named Joseph Ante, A-N-T-E, Ante, Ante, I don't know how to pronounce this tin hat guy's name, but... Um, he is a UFO, alternative health, survivalism, 911, self-proclaimed visionary into the future. Uh, and he sent me the following email, and I'm going to give you a little bit of the email exchange that went behind it. And then after we have fun at Mr. Auntie's expense, uh, we can talk about the bigger issue here. 
Hi, I'm J.E. Auntie, and I've been writing articles of 2012, UFOs, Alternative Health, Survivalism, 9-11, and many other topics for the past three years. I'm also an astrologer, and I believe I know exactly what will happen at the end of 2012 and why. Okay, and he who says they know exactly what's going to happen is full of shit to begin with, but let's continue on. Google me, J.E. Auntie, to read some of my articles. All can be reprinted and reposted anywhere without permission. So this is his legitimacy, that I can Google his name and find his shit. That does not legitimize anybody. Here we go. About 2012, basically, our solar system has been traveling through the rim of the Milky Way galaxy since about 1980, and it's heating up due to increased cosmic light from the galactic center. We pass out of this area space around 2042, or 30 years from now, but the Earth and the planets in our solar system will continue to heat up until then. Note, all the planets in our solar system are heating up. The ice caps are melting, etc., etc., not just the Earth. I, I actually agree with that. It's a good point to the global warming crowd, but it's because of the sun. The sun's heating up because it's its solar cycle, you know, that thing. But anyway, in 2012, we are a midway point. But at the galactic center, there is an area of space called the dark rift or dark void area where no light penetrates. When we pass through this area of the galactic rim, there will be less cosmic light coming out of our solar system. And then our sun will heat up and turn black with many sunspots. To compensate for this reduced cosmic light pressure, I believe the sun will be much harder for six to eight weeks' time. People will have to live indoors. All electrical and communications will go down and be severely damaged for many months or years. Many dozens, of, many dozens of nuclear power plants will go critical and melt down when their cooling cannot be maintained. This will be the main environmental damage done at this time. And most all wild animals will be killed along with much of the surface plant life. In the late 1800s, the telegraphs were knocked out in the U.S. by a flare-up of the sun. Uh, yeah, no shit, I, I've talked about that before. If this happened today, it would create the very same ending of power and communications as late 2012 will bring in a few months' time. I think it will most likely occur suddenly, many weeks before the December 2012 date, when the sun will flare up and send us CMEs, coronal mass ejections, and massive flares that knock out all power and communications for many months and years in some places. Guys, I would be reading this with a hysterical voice if I still had it, just to, to really drive it home. But I don't have the pipes for it today, so I got to read it kind of more low-key. The main governments know of this, and have been building underground cities since the 1950s. Yeah, for nuclear bombs, tool. Southwest Indianapolis, where I live, has stone and gravel quarry working two shifts the past 60 years digging. And the Indianapolis could not possibly use all the gravel and stone they're digging up. Really? Have you ever heard of exports? Frickin' God. Large unused lakes sit atop this complex, as does the National Guard Armory, the Indianapolis Airport, and major power plants. And blasting can be heard and continues twice daily for each shift at the quarry. Really, a, a quarry is taking out gravel. That's this guy's justification. For this. Again, Google me, J.E. Ante, for articles written years ago. Many are worst-case scenarios that are written with similar thinking. So, here was my response to this tool. I'm not going to Google you or take you seriously because you're a complete loon. First, if you knew your own subject, you would know the alignment predicted by the Mayans already happened. Leap year is a modern invention. Second, nothing is going to happen. Not a goddamn thing, and you know that. Email me on December 22nd. Trust me, the grid will be up and running. I'm not about fear. Something that has happened tens of thousands of times. I'm not about to fear something that's happened tens of thousands of times. So when this is over and not an effing thing happens, and I spelled out the word... 
What is your excuse going to be? What mantra will you take up next? Seriously, will you email me on December 22nd or January 1st and admit you, admit you were completely full of shit? Or will you say something stupid like, we were, quote, spared by the hand of God, or, quote, aliens intervening to save us? Well, shit, I better stop before I give you too many ideas on how to cover your ass. How about this? I agree to put you on my show and let you tell 45,000 people what you think, but you agree to come back and admit you were completely, totally full of shit if nothing happens, Jack, to which I got this response. Hi, Jack. I'm not a Mayan scholar, and my predictions are not based on them. I'm an astrologer. I am offering. I am also not offering to do an interview. I do hope I am wrong, but this is based on rather sound scientific principles of incoming cosmic light energy, the dark rift or void at the center of the Milky Way galaxy, and the 25,800 year returns. And by the way, our sun is not a member of... Listen to this one. You're going to love this one. And by the way, our sun is not a member of the Milky Way galaxy, as most people believe, but rather the Sagittarian dwarf galaxy nearby, which is colliding with the Milky Way. You learned something new today, at least. Yeah, I learned you're freaking nuts. Actually, I'm a mystic and mostly do out-of-body remote viewing. But in reality, it's all just an expanded awareness that has developed from a lifetime of various meditation practices. So I'm supposed to tell you guys the world is going to end in 2012 and everything's going to explode because this guy meditated, right? Uh, I do think your survival programs are definitely helping, especially the Michigan guy. I guess he means... Stephen Harris, I guess. I did not mean to upset you, but now you know my predictions. And when the sun turns black with many sunspots in a few weeks' time, maybe you can report the rest of my predictions and help a few more people with timely information about what is really happening before the power goes out for many months' time. And this was my response. So in other words, no, you're not enough of a man to admit you're completely full of shit on January 1st if nothing happens. Nuff said, you're either a con artist or you believe your own bullshit, one or the other, and neither is good. Again, how about we talk on January 1st and you tell me your excuse as to why we don't fry. By the way, uh, and I'll just, I'll just leave it at that, right? But anyway, this actually went on for a while. This went on for a long while, back and forth, because I was actually kind of bored and I was enjoyed playing with somebody that's clearly mentally damaged. But what I, what I, what I took away from this over the time is I kept telling this guy, I got more and more harsh with him. I mean, really harsh. Like basically telling him to, you know, leave me the F alone and quit being a pain in my effing ass and go away and, you know, go get psychiatric help. And he thought he was helping me. He's so delusional that he was like, now you have a new way to interview people because now we're doing an interview by email. I'm like, I'm not interviewing you fool. Right? I'm telling you to go away and leave me alone. And he keeps coming back and he's like, your listeners are going to be very upset with you if you don't, because he has a bunch more predictions. And he's like, when they know you could have helped them and the sun is black. And here's, here's the thing. Even these complete loons know they're full of it. I offered him to come and he's like, we'll tell people this and tell, I'm like, no, I'm going to tell people what you said initially and let them draw their own conclusions as to your madness. I gave you an opportunity to come here and explain everything. I even told him I won't, you know, I won't mess with you. I'll just let you tell people. I'll at the end of the show tell them I think you're wrong, but I'll let you say whatever you want. The only thing I want in return is that you agree on your honor as a man to come back and on January 1st, 2013 and say I was full of shit. And the answer to that is no. Why? Because this guy and mo many people like him in many facets of life that set these hard deadlines, 
they're full of shit and they know it. If we go into 2013 and get through 2013 without the other side of the double-dip recession, what I'm going to tell you guys, in spite of everything I said earlier today, is I was wrong, and I'm going to say, here's how I think I got it wrong. This is why I got it wrong. This is this is what propped it up. If, if we go into a full-on recovery, and I think it's going to be sustainable, I'll say, wow, I, I blew that, guys. Here, here's why I think we're, you know, I'll admit when I'm wrong. And I'm not giving you a hard deadline either. I'm saying this is kind of about where I think this is going to happen. Right? I'm not like, you know, it's going to happen right here, and I know precisely exactly the way it's going to happen. So it's easy to look at a guy like this and realize he's freaking nuts, right? He probably thinks E.T.'s living in his pillowcase or something. And it's easy to see it when it's a guy this far out. But you got to be careful, and this is why I'm putting on, this is the actual lesson. If you're worried about the sun turning black in a few weeks, open your eyes, and, and you'll see that it's not going to happen. Um, but if you... Uh, if you look at a guy like this and think, well, that's just a nut job, you need to make sure that you're applying the same logic when other people come out with these equally stupendous claims about having insider knowledge and all of the freak conspiracy theory bullshit. You need to use your mind and, and determine these things for yourself. So if anybody really believes that and you think you need to act on it, please don't, don't do it in a way that you hurt yourself. But, okay, I've given you this guy's predictions, and we only have a few weeks before the sun turns black, and then the rest is going to come after that. So uh, if a few weeks uh, the sun turns black, you guys let me know, because uh, maybe it's only black where you're at, and we'll investigate this further. Otherwise, I'm not going to talk about this idiot again until the 1st of January, at which time I'll email him and see what his excuse is. I just thought maybe we could put a little bit of fun in the day um, by looking at how crazy some people are really getting around this 2012 issue. The bigger lesson, this is damaging to the preparedness movement because we get associated with these people. So please, when you hear about stuff like this, be the first to police and condemn it. Which brings me to the next thing. Uh, last week, or week before... I went off on Michael Adams for his horrible coverage of the guy with the pawns in Oregon uh, and, and said, I actually agree that it's, it's a tragedy. This guy can't have a few pawns on his land, but the way it was covered was crap. And then I got a bunch of emails telling me how wrong I was for attacking other people in the liberty movement. Basically, and I came back and explained further, we need to police ourselves. So Ben Cook, who's a uh, firearms instructor uh, in Oregon, who I met out at the uh, SHOT Show in, uh, in January this year, sent me an email in response to my comments, both both sets of comments on that. Yes, exactly, everything you said about him, and he's talking about Michael Adams. Uh, as far as dividing the movement, and, and this is like, the whole reason I'm putting this on the air isn't to justify what I had to say, but because this might be one of the greatest quotes that's ever come out of my audience ever in the history of the show. And I think it's one that you should write down and, and commit to memory. And I think it goes up there with some of the great quotes that we use all the time in email signatures. Uh, and Ben gets credit for it as far as I know. I don't think that this is from anybody else. He doesn't say it's from him. He just wrote it. But it, it looks like he's just saying this himself. And here it is. It's a damn sorry cause that could be damaged by the truth especially when that truth is spoken in correction of a lie. Um, and he says, that was going to be it. But then it struck me that, that it is bullshit thinking, that the truth harming the liberty movement leads to crap likes Republicans bailing out Democrats and vice versa over every little thing, regardless of the merits of their argument. Good shows, great work, and thanks. Well, Ben, thank you for that one. I want to read it one more time to you guys. It's a damn sorry cause that can be damaged by the truth, especially when that truth is spoken in correction of a lie. 
uh, make that part of the way you, uh, you judge things, folks. Think about it deeply and consider sharing that quote with other people. Again, Ben Cook, uh, thank you, man. Thank you for being a great audience member. Thanks for that quote. Here's another more of a Q&A, simple, easy one to answer. comes from Ryan. And Ryan says, I have, heirloom, I have an heirloom tomato plant that's doing wonderful, except for some blossom end rot on about half the tomatoes. Can I save the seeds from the tomatoes that do not have blossom end rot and have a plant that is more resistant next year, or should I not save any seeds from this plant? Of all my heirlooms this year, this particular plant has produced more fruit than any others, even after the blossom end rot. Knowing the rot is supposed to be caused by a deficiency in calcium, I have tried many home remedies to fix this, but none have worked any suggestions. Well, first of all, it is a deficiency in calcium. And odds are that there's calcium there, but one way or another, it's not being made available to the plant. And exactly what you need to do to fix that, uh, I, I can't really tell you because I don't know how the plant is growing. Is it in the ground? Is it in a pot? How often is it being irrigated? What were these remedies that you tried? But in essence, it, the, you know, the, the bigger issue is often that um, the plant is somehow stressed, and because it's stressed, it, it, it fails to produce or, or to assimilate enough calcium, or the calcium there is not bioavailable. Bio a lot of times people will use oyster shells, crushed oyster shell. Well, it takes a while for uh, acids in the soil to start leaching enough calcium out of there. Eggshells, not as long, but it, it, the same thing. Uh, Eggshell has some calcium in it, but is it modern eggs or is it, you know, good quality eggs off, you know, chickens that are out scratching around in the grit, getting minerals and cycling them through their bodies? One's going to be higher in calcium than the other. Uh, there's nothing wrong with good old mineral supplementation, uh, commercial product of, of, of highly bioavailable calcium. Uh, you're not going away from organics or anything like that. So that's one thing you can look at. Another thing is sometimes a plant looks like it's doing really well, but with tomatoes, for instance, it could be just a little bit deficient in potassium. And sometimes a tomato that's got enough potassium to grow well has just enough of a deficiency that it has problems assimilating enough calcium. So it might be a little bit of a balance of your, your three main nutrients, your nitrogen, uh, your, your potassium, uh, and, and your phosphorus. Uh, it could even be a little bit of a phosphorus deficiency. I doubt it because it's doing so well, but it's possible. The other thing is, let's say it's in a pot. If it's in a pot and it's like hyper productive, you may just be exceeding the production capacity for what resources are available. In other words, the plant's getting nit or getting its nitrogen, its potassium, its phosphorus, its calcium, its other minerals, but it's only getting so many. And it has to decide which tomatoes are going to make it. And a little bit of blossom end rot is, is not really the end of the world anyway if you're still getting lots of production. As far as saving the seeds from the plant, uh, it's not a deficiency in the plant itself, so certainly you can. I don't think that saving the seeds from the good fruit is going to get a plant more resistant to blossom end rot. If that was my goal, I'd look to have plants that were all planted in the same space, and even a tomato that was slightly less productive, if I had a plant that was giving me no blossom end rot, and I was looking for resistance or better ability to convert calcium or whatever, I would select from that plant. But I don't see any reason not to select from this plant. You, but you, what it seems like you're going to get out of that is hyper-productivity. And if you get more productivity, even with some losses, that might be good to go. But I would still try to correct the imbalance a little bit if I could uh, with your soil and your soil structure. And if it's a new bed, it may just be a time-based thing. There, again, there may be plenty of things you've added that are calcium-rich, but it may need time for that soil to break down and develop and make that calcium more bioavailable. I would strongly encourage you 
that once this tomato is done for the year, to go ahead and sow some sort of a good uh, deep mining mineral uh, accumulating uh, crop in there for the winter, uh, something with a good tap root, and then, you know, put that back into your soil, something like oilseed radish or some of the different mustard varieties that work well for cover cropping. Let's take another one. So here's a question I've been getting more and more different variations of lately. This comes from Dean. Dean says, as I've gotten older, I need reading glasses to see up close. My far vision is fine, but seeing the target and the sights at the same time is difficult because I can, can't look through the reading glasses at the sights and see distantly at the target and have both stay in focus. What do you suggest? What do SWAT or other groups do? Uh, also, in the case of a mugging, I doubt I would even have opportunity to put classes on you anyway. Do you have suggestions for up-close encounters for visually challenged people? Thanks, check. Well, I think one of the biggest things that we all need to be doing at our up-close and personal uh, shooting is to, yes, we need to be looking down the sight radius, but we need to be getting much more instinctual. If you're looking at something, let's, let's say, you know, 15, 20 feet or closer, which most defensive situations are more in the lines of five to seven feet. It's not about aiming the sights accurately. It's about knowing where the round is going to hit. Some good inexpensive tools to train with this would be airsoft tools. We can set up some beer cans, and if you get a replica of what you carry, practice actually drawing and firing and just hitting a can. Uh, and, and, and that is a, a great, easy, low-tech way. Um, the CERT system, I just got my CERT from uh, Mike at Next Level Training, and my wife and I, and I've been teaching my wife to, to uh, have a little bit more control with a handgun, and you can actually see it's not like the sights are wrong because you can see where it hits every time you pull the trigger. That would be another way to start developing the ability to engage your close targets. I find most people, when it comes to distance shooting, uh, that have these these problems with kind of like a near-sightedness, far-sightedness uh, uh, controversy where I can correct one, but it causes an imbalance in the other. They, they tend to do very well using optical scopes, even low-magnification scopes, uh, things like, you know, one-and-a-half, two-power, up to four-power, and then very high-power scopes with longer-distance shooting. And I think that that's just a case of, you know, maybe it's time to uh, not worry so much about being that proficient with iron sights at distant targets. But at the up-close-and-personal um, I think that, that a lot of times the sights are highly overrated at the distances that we're talking about in real-world situations. And there's a difference with tactical uh, application, like you mentioned a SWAT team or a military team clearing a building or something like that. Um, you know, if you got to go to Crimson Trace lasers, that's fine. You know, it's not my first choice, but that's fine. So I would just not overthink uh, how am I going to be able to hit a target at 10 feet I would go out and start practicing hitting targets at 10 feet. And if the sights are a little blurry, just focus on being able to do it anyway. And uh, I, I think that most people shooting at those distances, uh, if they're shooting in real-world situations where you don't have time to really be precise and specific, are not getting a complete and totally clear sight picture anyway. That's just my opinion. If you have any suggestions on this, I'd love to hear from you guys in today's show notes in the comments section. And uh, I'm going to wrap up a little quicker than I had planned. Uh, my voice is shot, as you guys can hear. It's probably degraded during the uh, 
the episode. I've actually just had Dorothy contact my interview for today and tell them that I'm not going to be able to conduct that interview today uh, because if I do, I'm going to have no voice at all by tomorrow. So I'm going to abbreviate a little bit of the end here, and it won't have maybe the impact or hitting or passion or uh, the tonal quality that it usually does when I try to fire you guys up at the end of an episode where we've talked about both good and bad things. But I, I do feel I owe it to you to, to give you an answer to something people have been asking me a lot about lately, and that is why do I feel that we're looking at a, a closer side of the double-dip recession than I had in the past, uh, specifically with the election being part of a trigger for it? Well, you know, I started thinking about this, and I, I, I brought this out first about, I'd say a month and a half ago, I said that that would be the timeline, and uh, a lot of other people are saying it now, too. People that are much more switched on to this than I am uh, are coming out with their own reasoning why, and unfortunately all of the reasoning lines up. I would put among this Jim Rogers, uh, and a guy I can't find the email, I'll try to put it out later this week, but a guy that's kind of a trader, like a day trader guy, an analysis guy, um, something Vegas I think is his last name or something like that. He kind of comes off like a wise guy, but he seems like actually a wise man in the end. With his analysis, I'll talk about that in a bit. But my initial thing was, look, um, the cities have started to go over. Like, it's the whole casting in early, like I talked about with the fishing earlier. And once one person does it, other people are going to do it too. So that's already started to happen uh, with three cities in California, uh, with uh, Jefferson County, Alabama, and uh, with other places that we're starting to see. Uh, Harrisburg's on the brink. Uh, Central Falls, I mean, it just keeps coming and coming and coming, and it will keep coming. So I feel like the municipal crisis is accelerating, and that we're going to see a lot more of it in early 2013, that a lot of these people with the election coming in different states are trying to hold it and do whatever they can, but they're going to face the reality, and then once the kind of the the election's cleared out of the way. Any side is done trying to get its its boy in, so to speak. They'll say, "Okay, now's the time we have to like come clean with this." Uh, and as another thing, as these things have come clean, uh, so to speak, or have gone bankrupt, we're learning things that I really didn't factor into my original predictions. And that was, I made all my original predictions based on the data that we had uh, that these cities were actually just in as much debt as they said they were, and that that was bad enough. And it turns out that they're hiding shit. And that there's bigger problems. And I should have seen that. I should have anticipated that. So those are two accelerators. I also see that once this election's over, I'm either going to have a lame duck Congress, lame duck Senate, and a lame duck President, or a lame duck Congress, a lame duck Senate, and a, a President that's sticking around. And it's going to be right where the debt ceiling debate's going to come back again. And that's not going to be good for the economy. As I'm talking to people and have been talking to people through the summer, we're seeing some indicators that are kind of strange indicators like um, a reduction in garbage. Right? Well, somebody sent me an, an article about that recently that whenever the economy goes into recession, there's less waste produced. And right now, the garbage angle is in, in a steep drop, like a preceding indicator. It sounds crazy, but uh, it, it, it's generally speaking an indicator that people are beginning to ramp back on consumption. They're, they're holding back. We're going to go into a holiday season. Everybody's going to wait for, you know, you know, the black, the black Friday thing, and that's going to be less than expected. Earnings numbers are coming out are good, but the forward-looking statements by the companies are not so good. And I told you that in the recovery, the fake recovery, there would be some very high earnings take, and I told you that years ago, because inflation is creating a stutter step in the distribution channel. They buy the materials at yesterday's prices and sell the materials at today's cost. That, that that would be expected. So that's lined up fairly well. 
And then somebody just sent me this thing by this Vegas guy or something. I'll see if I can find it. I'm not promising it'll be in the show notes today, but if I can find it, uh, I'll stick it in there for you. It basically says this, the stock market over the past few weeks has on, been on this, this, this ramp up. It's been doing really, really well, and everybody goes, well, I guess it's, it's okay. But the problem is, and he has a chart he shows you right in the video, and I, I was going to play it for you on the air today, and if I can find it again, I really think you should watch it. But he holds the trading chart right up. And you see the market going up. You see the market, how it went up and down in the past. And you see this huge trading volume a company, either the, the buying out doing the selling or the selling out doing the buying. But when a market makes a major move like it's done recently, there's volume to cause it to move. And his point is right now there's like the volume's dead. So the market's on a rebound with no volume. So how is the market being driven up in cost if there's not enough buying to justify the inflation? And his contention is, and I agree with him after listening to his uh, his justification, QE3 is happening now. The, the, the Fed just went underground with QE3. The Fed is buying the crap out of the bonds, creating a U.S. Treasury bond bubble, buying more than even they're admitting on the open, and that this is an outside force pushing and forcing the market up even on exceptionally light trading volume. So in some ways I have mechanical, technical reasons for this. In other ways it's just a feeling, and, and my feelings in 2008 were kind of the same. It was a feeling coupled with reality. But now since I've stated it, a lot of these corroborating factors are coming in with people calling the same thing kind of right after the election, November, December, into early 2013, being a really tough time and a place where we see the markets kind of go through a secondary crash. And I would tell you that unless you're in really stable, long-term dividend-producing companies, companies that rode right through uh, the recession last time, uh, and I'm not going to give you ticker symbols or anything because that's between you and your advisor or you and yourself, but unless you're in those, liquidate, liquidate, liquidate. Get out of these positions If you want to go back in, you can go back in if nothing happens or if something happens, it'll create an opportunity. But I'm telling you that, my, and, and I got to tell you again, I'm not an advisor. It's just my personal advice that we're going to see some really hard times after the election. And you need to be, at least if nothing else, put very big reading glasses on and pay attention and be ready to move that money into cash or cash equivalents. Um, if you want to know what to put it in to make money during this time, I'm not your guy. That's not my, my modus operandi, but I'm telling you that this second side of the slam is coming. And it's either coming very soon or in the near future. And if I'm off by a year, this is how I feel at this point. It ain't like you're going to make a bunch of money in 2013 with it anyway. 2013 will either be the fulfillment of what I've been telling you or a languishing sideways year with not a lot of upside in it. That's how I feel. I could be wrong. Um, I'm not 100% liquidated myself, but we're in a much more strategic position uh, than we have been in the past. Uh, with specifically selecting companies that have been profitable, where at least if things start to go south, we'll have more time for our exit window. So that would be a minimal recommended step that I would take for you. So I'm talking about dividend producers, Uh, but I'm going to tell you again, be careful there because everybody snapped to that, and that's what's going on now. People are looking for that magic 4% or 5% number with a portfolio of stocks that are like dividend giants. People are building mutual funds on it now, and whatever money starts to flow into a sector heavily, it's got a boom ahead of it and a bust on the other side, so you've got to be ready for your exit positions on that as well. 
Uh, and then I want to finish up today with this would be probably a good 15-minute Rock'em Sock'em speech if the voice was there. It's not, but just a little bit about what we do about the reality, and that is we need to focus on our value as individuals and our value as communities and our values to each other because this is not uh, hit us in the face and rebuild crisis. But this is not something when I give you these timelines, like I said, 2013, 2014, 2012, late 2012, all of this wrapped in that whole space of about, you know, let's say uh, 26, 27 months. That's not even like the, the end or the beginning of the end. It's This is a long-term, long-horizon crisis. This is something that's been going on since 1971, and there will probably be returns and, and falls in the cycle through until the cold hard reality of what we've done cycles out and we need to use the ups in any way that we can to increase our capital our financial capital our social capital our community capital all the eight forms of capital that I've talked to you about in the past and we need to be building a future and we need to be thinking about our children and our grandchildren while we're building that future in spite of the catastrophes around us in the end Well, some people are going to fall along the way. In the end, I actually believe that it will work itself out, that we have a positive future to look forward to. But you can either stumble your way through to that future and hope you make it to the other side, or you can have a plan to thrive even during the worst of it, to be prepared for it. And I know some of you feel like you're running out of time. I've seen comments and emails like that lately. You feel like there's not enough time. You don't have enough resources. The fact that you know this is happening, is the biggest resource you have. And there is something that you can do. There's something every one of us can do. We can all start with little steps. We can all start to build up our communities. We can all start to build up our own resiliency in each and every way that we can. And have enough faith in yourself to know that you're going to be able to adapt to this situation if you are simply aware of it and open to it and ready to figure out. And I want you to start always using these words with yourself when you find yourself in a conflicted situation, when you find yourself in a crisis, or just when you find yourself where you want to get something done and you don't think that you you, you have them. And I, I've, I've lifted these words. I've stolen them from uh, uh, Dan Brown's novel, Angels and Demons. And that is, I have tools. Right? You have tools. And that's one of the, the, the protagonists uh, in, in the story, the, the woman that ends up with the, the main character uh, in, in crisis situations thinking to herself, you have tools, something she was taught by her stepfather. And, I, and I, ever since I've heard that, you know, it's not like the book changed my life or anything, because it didn't. It's just an interesting novel with a, a lot of fact and fiction and mystery built into it. I thought it was a cool book. But when I heard that, I thought that's, that's, that's one of the things I've always done. I just never put it that way. And I think that's what we all need to realize. So whenever you're in up, in, up against any situation, say to yourself, what are my tools? What, what can I do to correct this, fix this, adapt to this, go beyond this? What are the tools available to me? What knowledge do I have? What knowledge can I gain? What other, you know, I'm, I'm coming at this and trying to drive the nail through the board. Does the nail really need to go through the board? Can I do it with a peg or a cut? And, and that, that's a complete metaphor, guys. That don't, please don't think that that is specific to building a barn or something. That's how we all need to start thinking. And we don't need to start thinking at, at a higher level with that. And if we all do that together, then we're going to be able to get through the other side of whatever's coming. We're living at a time of great opportunity and great crisis. We're, we're at a time that there are some confluences of consequences of actions that we're going to deal with. Uh, I keep going back to it, but another of my favorite quotes by Stephen Covey. 
we're free to choose our actions. We're not free to choose the consequences of our actions. Well, in this case, we collectively have been taking some really stupid actions for 30 years, and we've been doing it really for 100, but really stupid for 30. And 30 years of stupidity is not going to wash itself out in a year or two. It's just not. And there are people continuing to heap more stupidity on it, married to the paradigm. They'll do anything to keep this thing floating, and it's going to shred itself eventually. And it, it's like a dangerous animal. Even though it's dying, in its death throes, it can do tremendous damage. And we need to stay aware of that. And if we stay aware of that, if we look after each other, if we look after our communities, if we look after our families, if we make sure we're doing whatever it is that we can be doing, instead of making excuses for what we can't be doing, if we do all of those things, we can stay out of the way of the tail as it thrashes around. And then we cannot just thrive, but we can survival we can thrive in the new opportunities that will be created i mean we had josh on this week you know a young kid creating biofuel in his backyard there's tremendous things that are coming down the way there's tremendous opportunities and we can be here to harness them we have to look after each other that's the most important thing and with that this has been jack spirito helping you figure out how to live a better life when times get tough or even if they don't Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Yeah.